Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. So I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so to me, that says he's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. And that's uh, just one take on potential sexuality with sex addicts because, as I've indicated before, there are plenty of sex addicts who love having sex with their wife. However, so oftentimes what we know to be true is that addicts have trained their brain to want something else, and so they're not very good at performing um, because they're looking for that same dopamine hit that they would get if they were seeking out prostitutes or seeking out massage parlors or pornography. So that's a little bit about Sexuality 101 with sex addicts. And boy, that's like our last last stage of couples treatment is helping, helping the partner and the sex addict develop healthy sexuality. You know, I, I talk about the fact that I'm trained in APSATS and APSATS sponsors this show. And clearly... There are three phases to you as a partner getting healthy. One is that safety and stabilization phase. Two is that stage where you grieve. You grieve the loss of what you had, what you thought you had, what you wanted, what you didn't have. You know, and that, the grief can feel insurmountable, but it actually is an important process to deal with so that you can get to phase three, which is restoration of the self and of the coupleship. And one of the things that we know is that you usually wait till safety and stabilization has occurred and then the grief has occurred because, you know, grief oftentimes is about anger. So if you're feeling really, really angry, you're probably grieving. And you certainly can't develop healthy intimacy and sexuality if your feelings are anger and sadness and you're on that roller coaster. So we take things a little bit at a time. And I would tell my clients, it's not exactly linear. You may have one foot in safety and stabilization and maybe you're doing some grieving and then all of a sudden you're, you get triggered. And your triggers increase because you are grieving the losses and images are coming up for you that uh, remind you of earlier times when you didn't feel safe. So oftentimes we have one foot in one, one phase and one foot in another, but we are here to get you through it all. That's what this show is all about. We're here to create safety for you 
give you the best advice you've ever gotten and get you healthy no matter what you choose, whether you stay with the addict, whether you leave. We want you to feel good about yourself again. And so that's why we really believe in shows like this that will help you. Now, I had an interesting comment from a sex addict today. And actually, I'm not sure he is a sex addict, to be honest, because he had been looking at pornography and it had been really impacting and interfering with his marriage, his family life, and his work. And when really confronted after about 18 years, he stopped and he said, you know, Carol, I really did not crave, I did not have urges. When I, and the only two times I went back to it were singular. They were in the evening and they were when I was really angry with my wife. And I thought to myself, yes, I do believe that was retaliatory. You know, you were angry and you were going to do whatever you wanted. Now, many of you might be listening to this story thinking, wow, sounds like an addict to me. But one of the things that we're really working on is calling this sexual addiction by something that's a little bit more accurate. And it's called compulsive problematic sexual behavior. Because one thing he couldn't deny is that he did have problematic sexual behavior that in his heart, in his conscience, spiritually, he knew that it was not healthy and it was not right to do in his marriage. And it certainly wasn't right because he also worked for a church. Okay, teen years. And he said, you know, I knew all those things, so I was violating my own code of ethics. And when that happens, um, it certainly causes, again, compulsive problematic sexual behavior. And it, I shouldn't say it causes it. It is the, the source of it. And that is a force to be reckoned with. Because when you have behaviors that you don't like, one might say, hey, why, why didn't you stop on your own? And what he said was, I really, I didn't like the behavior, but in some ways it was something that helped me with my boredom, with my anger, with my sadness. And once I got called on the carpet and called out for it, I got my act together. I stopped doing it. I started using some of the tools, but I really didn't need them long term. And this man now has um, had about six years recovery. So one of the things I know as a, a certified sexual addiction therapist and an APSATS, you know, and uh, a cl- certified clinical partner specialist is that some people get pegged something and they're not always that. I can't tell you how many people have come to me who said, oh, I'm, I molested my sister or I molested my neighbor or, or I was molested. 
And it turned out it was what we call sex play. It was child sex play, and it was playing doctors. There was no force. Um, But because we don't really talk much about sex, they didn't know that, unfortunately, and fortunately, kids will play doctor. They'll they'll participate in, in some sex play, and they grow out of it. It's usually between the ages of four and seven. And um, molestation is really when there's a significant age difference or or coercion, threats, things like that. So I'm a big believer in, you know, encouraging all of you to make sure that if you have kids, that you do talk to them about sexuality, you know, just the basic terms. And we uh, have had Jessica Edens on before, and she's talked about how do you talk to kids about sex, and and even more so, how do you talk to kids about what happens if their mom or dad is a sex addict. Now, today, we have a certified coach on who really done a wonderful job of creating a niche where she helps women primarily who are going through the traumatic separation, therapeutic separation, or divorce as a result of sexual addiction. And so she's going to be talking about what advice she gives women if they are contemplating a separation or divorce. Galen Emerson, who's a full-time life relationship and divorce recovery coach, gets down in the trenches with men and women and couples reeling and healing together from traumatic impact of sexual betrayal. And in addition to working with couples, she is uniquely passionate and an advocate for women whose relationships don't survive. And, you know, I'm, I do a lot of couples work, but I, like Galen, know that there are couples that, that shouldn't be together. Things are just not working. And when they don't work, then what do you do to absolutely help them with this transition? Because if you can divorce or separate with integrity, that's always the best way to go. And when coupleships don't survive, then you need those resources, programs, workshops, groups that can help you to feel that sense of community so that you don't feel like you're all alone. Galen is credentialed through Impact Coaching Academy and the International Coach Federation. And she has advanced training in problematic sexual behavior, abandonment, abuse, grief, trauma, and groups. So she's the perfect person to talk about what do you do if you're contemplating this kind of situation? And, you know, what do you, what boundaries should be put in place when you are wondering if it might not be healthier, if nothing else, to separate. 
and take care of yourself. And so partners oftentimes feel such responsibility to stay for the sake of the kids or the family. And I'm going to encourage Gay Lynn to help our listening audience know what some of those boundaries are and some of those red flags, if you will. Now, remember, it's always good to know your own values and boundaries. And, you know, when you know what your boundaries are, it's easier than to implement them in in the family and say, you know, here's my boundary. Don't want you objectifying women. And I don't want pornography in our home. And if you, my husband, choose to watch, read, or hear anything that elicits sexual arousal outside of our life together, then I will be forced to follow through with my own sexual boundary, which is, A, I'll talk to you about it, B, I'll abstain from sex, for a period of time until I feel it's safe to have sex with you again. C, I may sleep in a separate bedroom. And while those may be my sexual boundaries, I may have emotional boundaries that we will need to participate in so that we can see if we can't rebuild that intimacy. And that might look like setting times and ground rules for check-ins or meetings and, and being able to write out our feelings if we can't talk about them or setting up an appointment with our counselor. As you can see, boundaries help to keep people safe and they also help to reinstate the relationship in a way that has more structure in it while you're working on reunifying or reconciliating. And so, obviously, they can be tough. Um, That's what the beauty of groups are for. They can really help to clarify because, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Maybe the woman sitting next to you has six or seven values and boundaries that you agree with every single one. And you get to hear them and you go, oh, good, I don't have to think about what I would do. But the other thing we know is that if you set forth a boundary, then it's super important to make sure that you carry it out. Because the last thing you want to do is have a boundary and have your own values and then not carry it out, which sends the message that it really isn't as important to you as you would have thought. So more to be continued. But today we're going to be talking about transitioning and what do you do if you need to feel safe and you really you need a separation, a therapeutic separation, some time away or a divorce. So I want to welcome 
Galen Ray Emerson to the show. Hey, I am so excited to have you on because this is such a hard topic to talk about. Hi, Carol. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Yes. Well, tell me a little bit, first of all, tell, tell our listening audience who you are and what kind of work you do within our APSATS community and just the community at large. Yeah. So um, I have lived within this world of sexual betrayal and partner trauma recovery for nearly 17 years now. Uh, I've been through two relationships impacted by this. The first one ended very shortly after discovery, and the second one ended after a really, really, really long time of working and healing within that relationship. So I've been living this non-professionally for a really long time now. Professionally, I've been working within this field for the past five years. I began coaching specifically to work with partners of sex addicts because, frankly, I looked around and there wasn't enough available support and resources. And I was really frustrated by that, so I decided, you know what, I can sit here and be upset about it or I can jump in and become part of the solution. So I got my training to be a life coach, couples relationship coach, and divorce recovery coach, and kind of having that overall balance between those three things was really important to me. Then I went on to get my APSETS training, some additional training in grief recovery, abandonment work, uh, problematic sexual behavior, et cetera. So today I really work with a wide variety of different individuals and couples going through this process, from those who are seeing uh, very hard within their relationships. So I do a lot of that work, not only through my private practice, but also through a therapy practice Uh, in Florida core relationship recovery. And then I also do a lot of work with women individually at that point of discovery through that point of trauma resolution. And then my real subspecialty, kind of the area of work that I do that is different than a lot of my colleagues within APSETS and within this broader community is I do a lot of work with women who do reach that point of separation, permanent separation, moving forward, either responding to a divorce or initiating a divorce, and all of the very complex trauma that comes along with that as an additional component to that initial betrayal trauma. So lots of work, hard work, but really, really inspiring work when I sit back and think about it. Well, yeah, and so if I heard you correctly, obviously you had a personal interest in wanting to help partners. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I did. So when I moved into this field professionally, one of the factors that was so incredibly frustrating for me as I looked around at the available support resources that I could put my hands on or I could connect with locally and and even online virtually, uh, that was the fact that all of the material or the bulk of the material, support groups, therapists, books, et cetera, were oriented toward women who choose to stay or couples who choose to stay within their relationships. And not only through my personal experience, but also through several women I had met, some of my very early coaching colleagues, I encountered women who were looking for help at that point when their relationship was no longer surviving and finding absolutely nothing. And I don't know if you would have had this experience, Carol, or if you would agree with this, but if for me and for my clients, there's, it's almost worse to look for help 
and find everything but what you need than it is to really not find anything at all. There's this sense of kind of disconnect and marginalization that happens. Happens. Yeah. So I really wanted to be the kind of professional within this field that didn't only emphasize or focus on work within the relationship, but was also there to support my clients in this community in those situations where the relationships do not survive. Well, and you and I both know because we're coaches and I'm a mental health therapist, but in coaching they say find a niche, find a niche that you have a passion for as well as where the world may not have enough information. So it sounds like you were able to to meet both of those needs because there weren't materials out there. There wasn't support out there. And so you did the old build it and they will come. I did, and I have to, was my clients themselves who really pushed me to that. I had one particular client, and I might tell you a little bit more about her later on in our conversation, but she was looking for a support group for women, quote, unquote, like her, so women whose relationships were not surviving, and she couldn't find one, and I couldn't find one for her, and I was looking, and I was networking, and I was asking, and I was trying to find something for her so that she wouldn't feel so alone in the process. And ultimately, um, we didn't find one, and I got really tired of having to tell her, I don't know, I can't find something. So we rolled up our sleeves, we went out to breakfast, we pulled out our notebooks, and we put together a support group for her specifically because she was the driving force for saying, I want and need something more, so how can we make that happen? So she was a woman who knew what she needed and wanted, and, you know, we're always talking to partners about what are your needs? What do you need? And and then she was working with somebody dynamic like you that was willing to look for her. And when the two of you couldn't find that, you actually created it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's clients like that who keep me excited and inspired about this work. So. Yeah, I know because this is a you know it's a devastating situation when. Uh, a family decides, okay, we can't do this any longer. The coupleship is not going to work. And there's always lots of residual feelings of, did I do this long enough? Did I do it right? And and so clearly you understood how those feelings would come up. And, and you knew that truly partners need to make that decision for themselves. And if they believe that they'd be healthier out of the relationship, they need to work on making that happen. Right. Well, and in this woman's particular situation, this was a real learning curve for me as a coach. I hadn't met many clients who had not gone through the divorce process at their own choice. This particular client, her husband chose to leave her. So not only was she dealing with a betrayal that she didn't ask for, and a trauma that she didn't want or wasn't prepared to deal with. She also didn't uh, even get that really empowering step of making that decision for herself. And I had, I mean, I, it just hadn't occurred to me that that was something that happened. You know, the, the betrayed partner is often the one who says, I can't do this or I'm done doing this. 
But to actually have it go the other way around really caught me off guard. And I will say, I'll just put this out there for other practitioners who might be learning and, and kind of new to this idea as I was not terribly long ago, this is a trend that I'm seeing more and more and more. I'm encountering more clients who come to me and say, I want to keep fighting for the relationship, but he has filed for a divorce or he has you know, gone off with somebody else or he's decided to stop fighting. One of the more heartbreaking aspects of all of this and also one of the more inspiring because these women are not fighting to save their relationships. They're really fighting to save themselves. And as a coach, that's, that's just amazing and fantastic and exciting and exhilarating for me to work with. Well, yes, I'm glad you brought up that distinction that this was happening to her and uh, it was not by her own volition or choice. And that is always a tough situation because almost inevitably that involves another woman, uh, an active affair partner, if you will. So, awesome. okay, you rolled up your sleeves, and then what would you do next? Yeah. So the factor that this woman was expressing wasn't just, I mean, she was coming to see me, and she was getting that really individualized, trauma-informed, partner-sensitive care on a one-on-one basis. But what she found that she was grieving, in addition to losing her marriage and, you know, so much of her identity and role that was attached to that, she was also losing her social support network. So not only was she losing friends, family, church members, etc., she was also losing women that she had met in her betrayal trauma recovery support group who were staying within their relationships because what happened is she was going into these meetings, going into these support sessions, and she was the only one in the room out of maybe 10 to 12 women who was not healing within the context of her relationship. So she would, you know, fall apart in the meeting. It would be like tearing that scab off that wound. She would go home. She would ball her eyes out. She would pull herself together. She'd do her individual sessions with me. She'd go back to that group, craving that connection and community just to have the process start all over again. So when she was coming into her individual sessions and saying things like, I don't fit in anymore. This group doesn't feel like it's right for me. I was still a relatively young coach. I was a bit new and green to all of this. And I didn't really tune in initially to what was happening for her. You know, I think you might identify with this in the clients you work with as well. Nobody wants to be in this boat. Nobody wants to be in this group. So we often tend to find the differences or the ways that, you know, we're not like them or what we're going through is not like that because it's a really difficult thing to internalize. So that's what I thought it was initially. And it took a while of me getting to the deeper layers of what it was she was really saying to recognize that, no, this wasn't just about her discomfort. This was about a potentially and an even high-risk re-traumatization dynamic going on within what was supposedly a safe and supportive group. And I think that's really important. It's one of the things I emphasize when I get a chance to talk to other coaches, clinicians, clergy, community group leaders, etc., to be aware of that sense of margin and look for ways that when we hear women say, I don't know where I fit anymore, I don't know who is my tribe, I don't know who are my safe people, specifically within the context of divorce, that's a very real thing and we need to be really sensitive about it. 
Well, absolutely, and and clearly that was part of the major work that she was doing and you were doing was to reestablish that. So she did have a support network. She did know who her tribe was. And so what were some of the precipitating factors that you believe compel partners to end their uh, sex addiction relationships when they're getting to make the choice? Right. So, um, you know, I actually get this question quite often. Oftentimes when I'll meet clients or other colleagues, they know that I work a lot with women going through divorce, and they kind of want some reassurance that I am not like pro-divorce, divorce is the only answer, right, which is actually really the furthest thing in the world from who I am and the work that I do. So I often go through this process of explaining that, Many partners, first of all, choose not to separate or divorce immediately because we're lovers and we're fighters. You know, we are emotionally, socially, psychobiologically hardwired to fight like hell on behalf of our families. So during the past, these past 17 years, I've met, you know, hundreds of women faced with sexual betrayal trauma. I have personally never yet met one, and I'm, and they're out there. I'm sure I'll find one someday. I've personally never yet met one who got her discovery, walked out the door immediately, and never looked back without making a significant effort to repair the relationship. So my conclusion from all of that is that for most women, divorce isn't the first, second, third, 30th choice. It is not where we go first. So the women who end up at that point of divorce or separation from their SA loved one usually do so for one of three reasons. Either they can't stay any longer. They've made every effort and no matter how much they want to, no matter how hard they try, they're really unable to maintain that relationship and to keep fighting for that. Second reason is they lose their will or their heart to stay. It's like they've exhausted everything they had to give to the relationship and that energy has, has been extinguished and it really can't be revived again. And that's, there's a factor of what they want and what they choose versus what they feel they should do or have to do that comes into play there. And then, of course, the third reason, as we already mentioned, is oftentimes their essays have made that decision for them by choosing to terminate or abandon the relationship, either like unilaterally or preemptively. Well, you know, that is interesting that you said unilaterally and preemptively because those are the different criteria that plays into why somebody would choose to get a divorce. And, and, you know, I was talking earlier about safety and stabilization. And we know that, that women need to be separated if they cannot stay safe, if they really are afraid for their life, if they're, if the sex addict is participating in behaviors that are life-threatening. I mean, that's a good reason to, to figure out figure out an exit plan, if you will. But but most of the partners that I work with, when they make the choice to end the relationship, it's because they're exhausted. You know, they've been trying, trying, trying to, to bring this relationship back into a homeostasis that feels comfortable and the addict doesn't have enough recovery or they just can't resolve their triggers you know the triggers are coming and and they know that it's not like they need a geographic cure they know that 
they need time away and apart to begin to restore their sense of self. Have you noticed this in your clients? Absolutely, absolutely. And even though when I work with clients, again, my my subspecialty tends to be focused on relationships that are ending permanently, so those permanent or long-term separations. Um, But that sense of knowing that that is, the inevitable path, whether it's of their own initiation or somebody else's, that sense of knowing rarely happens in the middle of major trauma triggers. It typically comes when those partners can find either internal emotional space to observe and to tune into their own needs in the middle of the drama and the trauma or when they're able to literally physically pull away for a period of time. I know one of my mentors, when she will occasionally refer clients to a period of no contact with one another because those trauma triggers are so high, she says, you know, I can't predict how this will come out. This may draw you closer together in the end. This may pull you apart in the end. But the one thing I can guarantee is it will not stay the same. And like you said, when partners are stuck in that place of they can't tolerate anything anymore, that knowing that they need a game changer of some kind or another, that's where that that sense of clarity often really does come from, like you said. Well, and you know, you said clarity, and I really agree with that. And let's face it, you and I both know that when a partner has experienced discovery and they're in that state of crisis, there's very little clarity. I mean, they're just functioning to get out of bed in the morning or if they're trying to, to get to sleep. And there isn't a lot of clarity. But once somebody has had a period of time to really look at her situation, the fog lifts a bit. Hopefully the supports mm-hmm. are there, and clarity does come to them. So I'm wondering... What kinds of tools or techniques do you give to partners that are really looking for that clarity? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because a lot of the tools that I use with women going through separation and divorce are very similar to the tools that I'll use with women who are in that decision-making position or in that trauma resolution period. There's actually some beautiful parallels, and we may have a moment to talk about this a bit more, but the the parallels between trauma resolution for betrayal trauma and trauma resolution for divorce trauma. Um, You know, when it comes right down to it, whether women stay or whether they go, boundaries, finding our voice, prioritizing our values, our core values. What do we do when our values conflict or or compromise with one another? How do we handle that? Um, Being able to hold on to ourselves in relationships that may or may not always present in healthy ways. So self-care, oh my gosh. And (laughs) going through the process with, with partners of recognizing that self-care isn't just about things that feel good. There's a, there's a place and a time and a purpose for that self-soothing and self-comfort element, but sometimes self-care is doing the really hard, really yucky, really gutsy 
stuff that gets us into healthier places. So self-care is kind of like the bracket, the bookends I put around everything without that dedication to self-care, self-comfort, self-permission, self-soothing, all of those things, that sort of clarity doesn't ever really happen. And so let's and there's just nothing talk more about painful. Self-care. Yeah. I was just going to say there's nothing more painful for me both as a partner who's lived through this for a long time and as a coach watching other women go through it than to see someone feel so horribly stuck in that place. And so if, if you had to identify five techniques that promote self-care or five ways mm-hmm. that women can can utilize self-care, what would you advise them to do? Good question. Um, So I would start with self-awareness. I really encourage women to check in with themselves about what they're feeling. Oftentimes, especially when we're in the midst of trauma, things are happening so fast, we literally just are juggling one thing after another with cognitive you know, confusion, all kinds of other factors going on. So to be able to just pause for a moment or two and say, what really am I feeling? And I am a huge proponent of jotting things down. So there's this little book that I love to recommend called One Line a Day. And it literally has like three or four lines per each day on the calendar. And it's a perfect little tiny space to just jot down three or four feeling words or three or four things that you observe in your behavior or your situation. Maybe it's a number scale. Maybe it's on a scale from one to 10. How hopeful do I feel today? When you write those things down, you can track trends and patterns that don't become obvious for you when you're in the moment. So self-awareness, self-observation is kind of maybe how I'd how I categorize that, um, keeping track or writing things down. Um, Obviously, connection with safe people. And this is really interesting because I work a lot with women who are not necessarily uh, extroverted. So especially going through trauma, the concept of reaching out to others can feel like exactly the wrong thing. It feels very counterintuitive. So I work with women to find what are ways that you can connect with people that work for you. So maybe that's going to a support group every week. Maybe it's having a text chain with somebody. Maybe it is, you know, your your, um, ongoing uh, phone calls from people who know or care about you. Maybe it's a girl's night out once a month. So there's not like a one-size-fits-all way to do that safe, supportive, relational connection with other women, but it is like one way or another, however we can make it work, it's really, really critical. So what, so that's up to three. Um, Self-care in terms of rest, if we don't rest and find a way to self-soothe that autonomic nervous system, you know, that's really, really critical to being able to do those self-awareness sorts of actions and activities. Um, but what I'd say would be the fifth one, learning to use our voice, speaking our truth. So I'll tell you a little personal story. Um, I recently oh, celebrated I what that. could have or would have or might have been or, you know, pronouns get really interesting when it comes to divorce and life after divorce. But what would have been my wedding anniversary? And it was a day that I really wanted to just go crawl under the covers and, you know, spend the day sobbing. And instead, I put on my 
pajamas, my, well, my pajamas, my, what, what counts as going out in the world, comfy, comfy clothes, you might say. Um, and I braved the mall. This was a few days after Christmas, and, you know, there were sales and, and clearance and all this kind of thing. It was really important for me to be away from my screen, in my body, out in the world with other people. And I was popping in and out of stores, in and out of my car, and I was doing a lot of crying that day. I let myself cry through the aisles of the stores. I let myself, I got to the checkout counter at Target, and the poor 19-year-old cashier behind the counter says to me, so are you having a good day today? And, you know, it was just one of those moments, Carol, where I'm like, I can't bring myself to put on a happy smile and lie to this poor kid. So I said, you know, no, actually, I'm having a really, really hard day today. And he didn't know what to do with that, right? So he kind of awkwardly changed the subject, and that was fine. You know, that was where he was and, and who he was, and I didn't necessarily need or expect anything different. But for me to be able to spend that day not hiding my feelings, not apologizing for my feelings, not having to explain away what I was feeling, that kind of authenticity is priceless when it comes to surviving trauma and surviving the transitions that trauma creates in our lives. Well, absolutely. And, you know, partners all around the world say what can be so exhausting is not being honest, open, and authentic. We put on that face because we think that's what will make us feel better and that's what the world wants to see, when in reality – you know, for you to have just come clean and said, no, this is kind of a rough day, thanks for asking, or whatever, it, mm-hmm. it honors your condition. It honors where you're at right there. And I love that you were honest, and I love that you cried all day, and you just you felt the feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now let me ask you, if, if loving a sex addict is so traumatic – doesn't the end of that relationship provide some deep and lasting relief? Right. It's, I love this question because it is one of the biggest, most prolific misunderstandings that I often encounter. Both my clients feel it and the loved ones that surround my clients also feel it. So it's a really complex and tricky question. There are so many complicating factors that play into this one. One of my clients, once, and I'll never forget this, and I owe her a great debt of gratitude for giving me this languaging, said, you know, I don't want a divorce, but I need a divorce. She needed to lose the trauma of her addictive, abusive marriage, but she didn't want to lose her husband, her home, her family, her community, her identity as a wife and as a partner. So that conflict between what we need or what feels healthy and what we want and the loss of that emotional um, investment can be a really big thing. One of my favorite authors uh, is Lundy Bancroft. He wrote a book that I love called Should I Stay or Should I Go? And in that book, he explains something, and this isn't a verbatim quote, but he says, you know, too often when women articulate either to themselves or to other people the reasons for their relational um, separation or their divorce, it's as if they feel that they've given away their rights to then grieve 
the loss of that relationship. And when I read that line in that book, I, I rarely find something that rings just like so perfectly as true as that did. Um, there is a sense of grieving a loss that is different than the kind of loss that happens due to natural circumstances, you know, death, whatever, when someone chooses not to be with you or you have to make the critically difficult choice to let go of someone that you still love very, very, very much, there is a lot of death-like processing that happens over the course of that. One of the things that is really important, I think, for both clients and practitioners to recognize is we sometimes think of separation or divorce as an appendage or as an extension, kind of an incidental aspect of betrayal trauma, when ultimately really, and I could probably spend an hour just describing and explaining why I believe this so so strongly, but divorce itself is a trauma. It's uh, one of my favorite authors describes it as an amputation. You know that it might save your life, but you know that it entails tremendous pain. You can't quite picture what life is going to be like without it. There will be a long recovery period. You'll be changed forever in ways that you really can't even anticipate. There will be phantom pain. So when we look at divorce as its own independent trauma layered upon betrayal trauma, it can give us a better sense of understanding why losing a painful relationship can in some ways, and I won't say that there are never situations in which it feels like a relief, but more often than not, it doesn't. It feels like more pain, more loss, more grief, and yet another uh, trauma to be traversed and navigated. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And, you know, that is what we as coaches and clinicians really want to do is we want to help to have the client feel the feelings, find safety and stabilization, grieve the losses, and come up with some new um, kind of self-restoration, new affirmations about oneself. And, you know, that's kind of tips phase three when we're really interested in okay this we wouldn't want this to happen to anybody but you know how are you stronger or what is different about you now how are you smarter what in what way have you grown throughout this entire mess and I think reframing is an important tool to give our clients when they're going through something as devastating as separation or divorce Absolutely. It's probably one of the tools I use the most, I would say, as a coach. Yeah, so for our listeners, I, I constantly talk about APSEPs and, and mm-hmm. the fact that there's this three-phase process, but is there anything you might add about the multidimensional partner trauma model in terms of, you know, the framework that applies to partners and, and sex addicts that uh, – that we work with. Absolutely. So I love this. And, and I don't know how you work with clients using this framework, but I'll often, 
walk through these three stages in a very early stage of the coaching process, whether it's an initial consultation or a first full session, to be able to say, let's, let's take a little bit of an overview of what this whole trauma resolution process looks like. Because once you have a sense of kind of where the, the, the mile markers are, where the excuse me, where the framework lies, then when you're experiencing something and you're not sure where to put it, like you're not sure what, what's going on and you're kind of trying to get your bearings, your orientation about it, you have this, you have this roadmap, you have this GPS, you have this way of being able to, to process or categorize or designate it. So when we're looking at the process of surviving the trauma of a separation or a divorce. When we talk about stage one, you mentioned it earlier, we seek safety and stability. Here's one thing that partners <clears throat> and practitioners don't always anticipate, and that is that in the early stages of a divorce, women often sacrifice stability in order to secure their safety. So going through a divorce, honestly, nothing is stable at the beginning. Everything Every part of life, both internally and externally, is going through a transition. So when I'm able to tell my clients, so safety and stability is what this stage is all about, and there will be times when, for the sake of securing your safety, you're going to live with a lot of instability. So it helps with a little bit of expectation management. I explain to my clients that during stage one, trauma resolution focuses on trigger management, self-care, self-regulation, self-intervention, and that during stage one, life is about a lot of triage work. So it's looking at what is absolutely and utterly and urgently important because it's survival time, right? And what can be deferred or set aside? What can I return to at a later date that doesn't need to make what I'm dealing with today kind of cross that threshold into panic, crisis, anxiety, etc. So Stage two, when we're looking at this remembrance and mourning, and I kind of rephrase that a little bit for my clients, I'll say this is about processing. This is about contextualizing. How does this stuff all fit together? How do we come to terms with all this? I find as a coach, specifically working with divorcing partners, this stage two place is where I do the bulk of my emotional coaching with clients. So in contrast, like stage one is very practical, logistical, survival-oriented work. Most of my clients tend to spend the majority of their time working with me in this stage. So during stage two, trauma resolution focuses on loss, grief work. We talk about big, big concepts like abandonment, rejection, failure, all of those things. And now that some of that crisis stuff has either calmed down or my clients have become better at coping their way through those crises, there's something, there's kind of a shift that happens, and women find themselves, in, and this, this is words that my clients use to describe it. I'm, I'm always a little bit careful with languaging and labels, but I've heard them say that it feels like they now have the luxury of feeling their feelings. They have the luxury of being a mess, breaking down, you know, having their grief days, going to Target and venting to the cashier guy, you know, things like that, things that they have been deferring while in stage one when everything was all about survival. So it's very much a processing approach versus like a, a triage approach. And then stage three of, is my favorite. I, I have no problem admitting that as a coach because that's where the work feels really fun and exciting and inspiring for me. So stage one is when women really begin to express that felt 
sense of triumph over their trauma. It's when they actually believe that everything we've been telling them will happen might actually happen. And that sense of it's coming from internally versus externally. I love this stage because it's when women tend to surprise themselves and impress themselves with things that they didn't anticipate or expect that they could materialize within their healing and their recovery. So, you know, during stage three, trauma resolution focuses on building what's new, you know, in those very same spaces that have been vacated and created by the trauma itself. So I see lots of surges in growth during this stage, lots of increase in self-esteem, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, or, or even I wouldn't even say an increase in those things, like they become easier or it's a mastered skill. But my clients are better empowered and eager and able to, to dig in and explore those things, even if they don't come up with perfect solutions and perfect answers, and I love that. And it's really in stage three where my clients tend to do things like make big decisions. So they change their career, they move across the country, they start a new relationship, they um, do the thing that they've been on hold, life has been waiting, they, they've, been, they've been waiting to live again. And this is the stage where, again, by disconnecting from such unhealthy dynamics that existed in their relationship, they find themselves better able to reconnect to themselves and others in ways that honestly better than they dreamed or imagined was possible. My divorce recovery coach years ago said, you know, when she, when she first works with clients, she looks at them and says, you know, I wish you could look into my crystal ball and see your life two years from now. And I remember at the time thinking that two-year comment was a little bit arbitrary like, you know, what's so special about two years? But I've also learned through both personal and professional experience that year one is so hard. It's almost like going through a fog, you know, and kind of hard to remember all of those first. Year two is where things really start to mix up. And then by year three, things start to look really different. Well, you've got it down. And, you know, I'm sure people are listening to you, and this is so clear and it's inspiring. And so how can people get a hold of you if they want to work with you? Because as a coach, you can work with people all over the world. I can and I do. Um, I actually have been expanding my working hours to be able to accommodate women in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. So uh, it's one of the best things about being a coach. It's one of the things I love the most. So my website is womeneveractor.com. And specifically, if you go to my webpage, there is a section called Alone in the Aftermath. And that is the section where I have my resources specifically for divorce, divorcing, and separated partners of sex addicts. On the broader website, there is more information about the work I do with other kinds of clients as well. But um, information about individual coaching, group coaching, I do a lot of workshops and kind of one-time things. I do a lot of consultation and training for colleagues who maybe are getting or are unfamiliar or want to learn more about this area. I offer free opportunities for clients. So, for example, um, coming up here close to Valentine's Day, I'm going to be doing free, two free support sessions specifically for women who are going through separation or divorce and kind of wondering, so what does this mean for me and what is this whole concept of love and how can I be my own source of love and celebration during you know, a holiday that can be really tricky. So lots of that kind of stuff. 
Absolutely. And so especially this month with Valentine's Day, which is always mm-hmm. bittersweet for anybody who's a partner, mm-hmm. no matter what always. their situation is, Valentine's Day is really tough. Um, so I'm just going to reiterate one more time that if you want to work with Galen, you can go to her website, www.womeneveraster.com. And that is her website. She has resources under womeneveraster.com forward slash aftermath. And you can always email her at Galen, which is G-A-E-L-Y-N, Ray, R-A-E, at womeneverafter.com. Galen, thank you for creating this niche for our partners. It, it, it's, it would be a treasure to be able to be a partner and to have these questions and know that they can consult with you, you know, not necessarily even work on divorce coaching, but just consult with you mm-hmm. and get clarity about what their next step is. Absolutely. Carol, thank you so much for inviting me to share about this. And thank you for sharing this work with me in this Assets community that we are growing more and stronger and more vibrant every day. I love it. Me too. Thanks, Galen. Make it a great week. Thank you, Carol. Bye-bye. Bye. So as you can see, Galen really knows her stuff. This is her niche. She has a personal investment in it. And She's honest. She says, no, this is not, you know, necessarily going to provide immediate relief. This is a hard situation to deal with. And she's got the phases and the stages down and, and is available to help you work through the process. So I will catch you next week and just look so forward to working with you and talking to you and, and sharing the experts in the world Uh, to help Betrayal Recovery Radio and partners get healthy and uh, know that they are not alone because you aren't alone. You've got us, and we are APSATS, A-P-S-A-T-S. Okay, now, fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll catch you next week. For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.